Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding on air with my co-founder, Mr. Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going well. Thank you very much for asking. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Happy Friday. It is Friday, April 3rd. We hope everyone is having a uh, good end to their week. And obviously, it's been a pretty, uh, I guess you could say, volatile day uh, or volatile week in the markets. Um, and before we roll into all of that, though, if this is the first time that you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. I'm starting to see a lot more activity in the comment section. Uh, so please keep that up. I definitely like to read that and read the comments. And if you guys have any suggestions on anything uh, that we should go over in these videos, definitely leave a comment on YouTube or uh, DM me on Twitter or just tweet at me at focused uh, compound. Uh, so in today's podcast, Jeff, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to be going over the focus compounding daily uh, per usual, and then we'll just talk about some you know topics um, that have been happening in the markets, and you know just really talk about the stocks that relate to that. Uh, the market closed today about negative one point five percent. Seems like on the week we've just kind of uh, traded in this range. What I thought was interesting, Jeff, is the VIX. So you know the VIX and um, the market typically have an inverse relationship. And the market was down today. And in times like that, usually that means volatility is going up. Um, and volatility was just not there today. I mean, I think volatility was just selling off as well. Uh, so it's been kind of interesting to see that in the intricacies of the market. I know you don't care about that. And a lot of our listeners probably don't care about that uh, either. But, you know, I just thought that was kind of uh, interesting and something that um, I noticed. So, um, uh, one thing that we have on the top of the Focus Compound Daily, uh, coronavirus live updates. Obviously, everything going on, it's good to you know um, keep up with everything uh, regarding coronavirus. Jeff, there's a lot of people that emailed me who share the same belief as you about like the long-term effects of everything going on right now in relation to the economy. And right. how it seems like a lot of people, and maybe it's not a lot of people, but just a lot of people seem like, pretty surprised that all this bad news keeps coming out about like for example the jobs today um you know 6.6 .6 million jobs were lost and that the markets just kind of shrug it off and i know a lot of people you know will argue and say well the market's already priced in you know the worst case scenario um but there's a lot of people that reach out to me that were you know of the same opinion as you and are just kind of surprised that it seems like you know, we're not down way more than we already are. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I saw an interview with Bill Gates. He did an interview with, uh, was it CBS this morning? One of these shows that he did a pretty long interview with. But he mentioned, just like in passing, when asked about the economy, he mentioned that the economy will recover, whereas, you know, people, if you don't save lives, people will die permanently. But it will take a few years to get back to where you uh, were before this started. And that's basically my view. Um, I don't think the market is really pricing in it. It'll take a few years to get back to where you were at the end of 2019 in terms of earnings and things like that. But I think, think it's like pricing like a V-shaped recovery type of scenario. I, I don't know. I mean, in terms of like what the um, uh, the the whether we're talking about price to sales or Schiller PE or any of those sorts of things, because we'll have to use those because there won't be a PE ratio pretty soon or it won't be a meaningful PE ratio pretty soon. So um, According to those things, we're not really at the levels that you normally see at a recession. Now, interest rates are really low. So priced against bonds or priced against government bonds, not necessarily all bonds. Um, it, you can kind of adjust for that fact. But I, 
I mean, it is true that like if you were expecting a a recession event more like you had in 2008, 2009 or um, even like you had about what, 30 years ago, um, anything other than like the kind of recession you had in like 2000, um, anything other than a really shallow recession, you're normally it's like 50% lower in terms of earnings and stuff than where we are in terms of normalized earnings. Now earnings don't really matter in a recession because they're, they're misleading, but in terms of like peak earnings, if you want to use that or normalized earnings or price to sales or market cap to GDP, like Buffett likes to use, you know, those sorts of things. So you'd have to, we were so high up that you have to fall really far, really fast. So in a sense, it doesn't surprise me because the market fell the fastest that it basically ever has, you know? Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me because we are so expensive, but it does surprise me how, um, and not all people are this way. I mean, we talked about Howard Marks's memo the other day and, you know, he sees that it might be a buying opportunity in some things, but he doesn't seem like feeling that overall stocks are pricing in um, the kinds of uh, declines that we might see and stuff like that. But I am surprised by how many people think of it as a big buying opportunity. Um, that part does surprise me, uh, especially well, more I mean- value oriented. I mean, it. I mean, in theory, it, it could be a buying opportunity, right? You're just saying that you're just surprised how many people think of it as a buying opportunity today, as opposed to something oh, yeah. that's yet to come. Yeah, it will. I mean, if it drops further, it'll be a buying opportunity generally, and specific stocks, it is a buying opportunity. And volatility just creates buying opportunities anyway. Even if the stock market isn't as cheap, if it's very volatile, you'll have more opportunities to do smart things. But I just mean. Um, I'm a little surprised by how many value investors I hear, uh, fund managers and things who are very value oriented, um, thinking of it as such a big opportunity uh, now and as such a temporary thing, I guess. Um, so, you know, uh, I mean, but, but, let's but, like decipher it out. Like, what do you what do you I mean, define as a value investor? And I'm 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 seriously curious to hear that, because oh, okay. like, what does that even mean in situations like this? You know, I mean, everything's cheap. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, like um, in terms of a value investor, value investment. I just uh, you just said that you're surprised that a lot of value investors are, you know, jumping in right now. Yeah, yeah. I am. Like I saw um, John Rogers of Ariel Fund talking about it. Now, he's more of a quality, I would say, than a value purely. But in the Buffett mold, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there were a couple others like that who people who were, um, you know, who maybe who aren't always optimistic about stocks that at, at prices like in 2000 or 2008 or something, they would say there's not a lot of bargains to be found are saying this is a big opportunity uh, in some cases. So yeah, some of those, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little surprised by, um, you know, and I, want, have, I, I want to be clear. I mean, you do think it is, a, it could be a, uh, an opportunity, but oh, you were just yeah. much more pessimistic about the near term future. I think the stock, I think the market price is not low. Um, it's not, the market price by most measures that I would use to value a market is not, if we go to a longer term chart, you can go to a longer term chart. Um, so if we go to a longer term chart, even where we were at the lows, right, uh-huh. is not that different than when we were, you know, um, uh, okay, you want to go back? back. Okay. Monthly <laughs> back to- How about <laughs> 1938? All right. Do you want to look at, uh, yeah. Do you want to look at about 10 years? Yeah, sure. So we can look at more what the bull market is. So I can just point this out because I'm not someone who's like timing the market. stuff. I'm not concerned with um, a bull market can go on for a very long time if it starts at a very cheap price, but where we are, right. 
is back to prices at like 2017 or something like that. And we're at the lows we were, and now we're above that, I think. Now, yes, yeah. we had a moment. It was a moment, if you remember, at the end of what was it, um, that we had, uh, you know, we in another decline. But you saw how quickly that is. I don't really count those, by the way. Yeah, so I also don't count the that was low. December of 2018. Right. And some people are counting the low. And when there's a new bull market, of course, what they'll do is they'll time it from the exact low. But if you notice, that's a very sharp low that you had. So if you're in on one particular day, yes. But I'm talking more where are you on average for a few months or something. And we're like more at average prices of 2017, I'd say, right? If I'm looking at that, right? Because you are a little bit more expensive by the end of the year, but you were cheaper at the beginning of the year. So yeah, I mean, um, I think things don't look as good now as they did in 2017. And I don't think we're a lot cheaper. We've moved a little bit further along with companies retaining a little bit more earnings. Some companies have gotten a little bit better, but not a lot better. Earnings. What about interest rates being lower? Interest rates are a complicated topic because I don't, interest rates are a bit lower, but I don't know that the future projection for interest rates would be lower now than it was two or three years ago. So this is always a complicated thing because I've looked at bank stocks before. It's very hard the, something like the Fed funds rate today is not in any way predictive of what the Fed funds rate will be in 10 or 15 years. And a stock's price is based on interest rates, but it's not, you buy the stock today from someone who's using today's interest rates, but you'll sell the stock when interest rates have already risen or fallen and that's affected the price of your stock so, because it's a very long-term asset. So it is complicated. Um, I think interest rates were low throughout that period. They are a bit lower now. And a lot of people send me emails asking about like, what do I think will happen because of what the government is doing and what the virus is doing and all of that about deflation, inflation, all these things. We don't know. Um, there's more chance for unusual things happening in terms of um, interest rates, inflation, deflation, all those things. And there was a couple of years ago, obviously, because of the actions being taken are different than what would normally be going on. And that's my thought. I mean, Jeff, I mean, seriously, I was just thinking about this the other day, right? So a lot of people that are saying buy gold right in this situation because of like mm -hmm. potential inflation everything going on and it's like you know i was thinking about it and this is obviously just goes against absolutely everything but it's like what the fed's doing right now whether you deem it worthy or not um is you know obviously they're taking unprecedented measures right so if inflation really becomes a um like an issue Right. I mean, is there even free markets anymore? You know, I mean, who's saying that the Fed just won't do something themselves to sort of counteract that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I will. I can. The reason why you might I, I'm not thinking that you'll have inflation, but the reason why you could have inflation is because things are potentially um, some things like labor markets and stuff are getting bad enough that the Fed will ignore any signs of inflation for a long time. So they're not going to, um, they're, they'll leave rates lower for longer in the face of high inflation, they would if that happened now, than uh -huh. is normal for them, right? But it, we talk about inflation like it's a normal 3% or whatever thing over time, but it, it's been pretty dramatic, the differences that it has based on what decades you're talking about. And we had, you can have deflation, that is possible, and you can have inflation like you had, you know, uh, what is it now, close to 30 to 40 years ago. So they're both possibilities. And I don't know how you would prepare for that. I think to, I wouldn't prepare in any way for that using gold or anything like that. If you were going to, obviously, you would want to have a balance of gold, which in theory is does better in inflation. And um, 
probably the longest term bonds that you could have. In fact, what you'd really want is super long-term zero coupon government bonds. Um, some zero coupon is better for in case of a deflation happening. Um, so something like the longest term bonds you could have and the least amount, uh, the most of the payments that you receive being the furthest in the future, because that benefits from deflation. And there are strategies that do that, that they balance off those two things. So those are kind of how you'd have protection from those. But even that is misleading because over very long periods of time, gold may follow inflation somewhat, but the relationship between gold and inflation is not very strong in shorter terms. Like over a five-year period, you shouldn't assume there've been periods where gold has fallen a lot while inflation was high because gold, like anything has a price and the price, yeah, could, let's be, look at it. Let's see the price could be high uh, or low versus the past, you know? I don't know what the heck this blue line is, but gold futures, yeah, it looks like it's been um, moving up. So um, I, anyway, people don't pay. I, I just, I, you know, that I don't like gold and that people don't pay attention to what the price is. I mean, for instance, the price of gold versus other commodities. I once did a thing where I created a Excel sheet of about 30 different commodities and priced each commodity in terms of its ratio to all other commodities and then averaged those out in different average ways to try to figure out like is gold or oil or whatever expensive versus timber and silver and copper and those things. The idea being that if it's very expensive versus other commodities, it isn't just an issue of inflation or deflation. It's that the thing itself has gotten expensive or not. And if you look at that, what you can see is that at times people like gold a lot more than other things and it gets too expensive versus other real assets. And other times it gets cheap versus other real assets. So it's not just an inflation thing because you have to remember in theory, if you look a very long term, I know people like gold is like a money substitute and it was used as money in some places at the past, although silver was commonly used as money in the past too. Um, there's no reason why gold over a very long period of time should have different um, inflation protection capabilities as something like silver or copper. They should really behave the same way. So it's just, so it's, I don't like it even more so in the sense that it's not the only way to protect yourself from inflation. And it is the thing people could become obsessed with. It's kind of the reason why I like discourage people from buying the, you know, the stock Zoom or something, because you shouldn't buy the stock that everyone's rushing into because of something that's happening temporarily here. Sure. If anything, you probably would want to buy like another commodity that's that also benefits from inflation in the long run, but that people aren't as obsessed about at the moment as gold. You know, you don't usually want to do the thing that everyone rushes for when they think that they are getting some kind of protection. Mm -hmm. um, Clark Street Value, he had a write-up on GLPI and Penn National Gaming. And, you know, reading, and, and obviously I'm familiar with Penn National Gaming um, since, you know, they acquired Barstool. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear your thought because it, it made me think, right? I mean, so we've looked at a lot of casinos and we've talked about a lot of stocks on the podcast recently that are closed down right now, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you think about, you know, um, I guess operations or just a business in general um, when they announced that they're shutting down their business? Because Virtu Motors is a stock that mm -hmm. we own in the managed accounts and we've spoken about on the podcast, we've sent out in the Focus Compound Daily, so that's, you know, a known fact that we own that company. They are, you know, temporarily halting their business right now to, you know, preserve cash, draw down on their credit line, and, you know, sort of wait out what's going on right now. I mean, how would you think about that when it comes to valuing businesses? Like, is that a time to buy a new company when they're just kind of sitting there and not, and have zero revenue coming in and um, are on a, you know, a shutdown? How would you think about that? 
Yeah, so it could be. It depends on a few things. So one, it depends on how the stock responds. One thing that was surprising is that we follow a stock, a Singapore stock that, that does business in China called Straco. And what was very surprising is the business was shut down several times and the stock did decline. Moved, but it, really? I mean, like what you would think it would. I mean, when you told no. me that, I went to, I went and looked at it. And I was like, oh, I bet you the stock's going to be crashing. It was like nothing. I was like, yeah, I mean, it was, it was down, not what I thought it would be. Right. Very minimal moves. Now, that could be because Chinese stocks have, for whatever reason, haven't declined as much as stocks in the U.S. and stuff. But here's what I do. So I wrote up two stocks this week for uh, Focus Compounding for premium, for the Focus Compounding members. Got so right. one of them was Hamilton. Uh, uh, one of them is. Uh, so, oh, that's from last week, though, right? Yeah. But you got Haynes, Haynes, uh, Haynes uh, Brands earlier in the week. And then you have Haynes Brands. Yeah. Oh, but I also have Hamilton Beach Brands. OK, so I'll, which hasn't gone up yet, right? No. OK, so. Hamilton Beach Brands um, and uh, Hamilton Beach Brands should have gone up already, pretty sure. But anyway, so um, so there's some sort of problem there. But Hamilton Beach Brands is um, one that I wrote up and Haynes Brands is another. Those are the two that I should talk about instead of Bunzel. So Bunzel is fine in various ways, but um, Hamilton Beach Brands and uh, Haynes Brands are a better illustration of the issue these companies face. So the important thing in a situation like this is not necessarily how much you make or lose from your operations because your operations are shut down. And it's not really your balance sheet strength. It is your, um, your assets, not whether they're solid, but whether they're slow or fast, slow or quick assets. So the problem that I saw with Hamilton Beach Brands, which is very cheap, and so these are both value stocks. Haynes Brands is at a P of like four last I checked. Hamilton Beach Brands is at like a six. Um, they have some debt. So Hamilton Beach Brands is a seasonal business and it is open for business in a sense, uh, as is Haynes Brands in a sense, because these companies do sell through Walmart being one of their biggest customers. That's the biggest in each case. Um, and then they also sell through places like Amazon and, and uh, Target and Kohl's and stuff like that. And some of those are open. But uh, Hamilton Beach Brands has almost no cash on hand. I think it has like $2 million on cash on hand to start the year. It actually normally has to sell off its receivables to raise cash to build inventory throughout the year. Um, Haynes Brands, meanwhile, has a lot of debt. In fact, it has a lot more than Hamilton Beach Brands, and that could be a big concern. But a lot of the debt is not due until uh, like one of the biggest one that I know of, uh, like a $900 million uh, um, maturity would be in December of 2021. Most of the debt is more like 2024 or something like that. Meanwhile, they drew on a credit line that they have, and they should have over a billion dollars in cash on hand. So the issue is how many of your assets are things like cash, receivables, and possibly inventory. But for a company like Virtu, for instance, which is cars, inventory is very slow moving. So that's not very good. So it needs to be to get you through a crisis like this, you need cash. And there's different programs of governments trying to lend to businesses and stuff for this reason. But what you need is not a strong balance sheet, not a lack of debt. Debt isn't necessarily going to kill you. What is going to kill you is not having cash on hand. And so that's often why I talk about in the past, like um, that, although I wouldn't mind seeing companies borrow a little bit more, I would like them to keep more cash on hand, not to, not to have no credit lines and no cash and things like that. I'd rather them borrow four times debt to EBITDA, you know, and then keep one times EBITDA on hand at all time because of issues like this, because it will be a real potential problem for Hamilton Beach because they need to find ways for lenders to give them enough cash to get them through a situation like this. So when you talk about casinos and things like that, there's two issues. One is how they recover 
in a recession or something, which isn't necessarily the worst for casinos that are really close to uh, their customers that aren't like destinations, right? But then the other thing is um, how much cash they have on hand, how liquid they are and things like that. And when their maturities are coming up too, potentially. But um, the, <laughs> the, uh, the issue really is the liquidity on the balance sheet. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And normally when I see write-ups of stocks, you know, they talk about things like the enterprise value, right? How much debt they have. And a lot of times comparing to things like assets in general, where what we want to care about is, um, you know, things like how much they have in, in, in um, their, on their balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And you can use things like there, you can see there, the Altman Z score and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at Penn National Gaming, they have 12 billion enterprise value. And of that, the market cap is uh, 1.11 billion. So carrying a, a lot yeah. of debt there. Well, one issue there. 10 times, 10.6 uh, debt to EBITDA. Right. And of course, there's no EBITDA now. So, yeah. um, so what that means is there's a miscalculation, presumably. I don't know where their bonds trade, but there's a miscalculation because what it's doing is it's adjusting the market cap to the current stock price, but it's not adjusting the enterprise value to the current bond price, presumably, and I don't know. Penn National Gaming's bond, based on this, we would expect that Penn National Gaming's bonds trade at a deep discount to par. So you probably can buy them for way under what they're supposedly will mature at. Um, that would normally be the case with a stock like this, uh, because there's a lot of different signs on this of, of financial distress. Um, mm -hmm. But it was probably something that had too much debt to start with. That is a problem for a lot of casinos, not the ones that we look at, but a lot of them. Uh, but even some theme park things and stuff do this. They borrow a lot to buy um, other uh, casinos and things like that, right? They use debt to do that. Like, according to this, just to give you an idea, if this is true, it said that interest coverage was 1.4 times. Mm -hmm. That was before this happened. 1.4 times is not very good interest coverage. So, um, I mean, anything less than 1.25 times, even in the safest industry you could imagine, would be severely worrying about the, the safety there. It, what that means is if you're covering interest that little, it means you can't pay off any of your maturities using anything but refinancing more debt um, because obviously you're using everything to cover your interest. Now, to be fair, this is a casino thing. It's possible that, I'm, that like the, there's big differences between EBITDA and EBIT and stuff that I'm not seeing, although yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, that is true. So um, they might be a lot of depreciation that the, or amortization that they claim isn't real is that that's how they're um, paying off maturities or something. But yeah, I mean, obviously it's a severely, um, severely uh, um, distressed sort of situation. And that will happen for any casinos that have a lot of debt and stuff. But remember casinos with a lot of debt managed to fail in like 2008, 2009, even without a crisis like this because mm -hmm. their balance sheets usually aren't that good. Interesting. Um, David Busters, they announced yesterday the second um, company, I, th I believe it's the second one, after Cheesecake Factory, to tell their landlords that they ain't paying. And uh, um, uh, I came across this article that they are seeking uh, private investment in public equity, also known as PIPE, as a part of financing options um, you know, to, to help the company. And we've obviously spoken a lot about Dave and Buster. So I was curious if you had any thoughts on this or on the company and everything going on, you know, with their liquidity position. Yeah. So, uh, this will be common among com the companies aren't paying their, uh, rent. I mean, it's only going to be a domino effect, right? I mean, uh, if they're the second cheesecake did that and we talked about, I forget the date, but I mean, we saw that letter where cheesecake, 
let their landlords know even you know weeks before they announce yeah. it to the public or whatever. But I mean, how many other retailers are doing this or brick and mortar? I mean, they all have to be. A lot of them have to be doing, it, especially if you see cheesecake and maybe Dave and Buster's doing this. It's just gonna have a domino effect. Yeah, and for instance, there's must be multiple malls with Dave & Buster's and Cheesecake are two of the most important uh, tenants. I mean, the mall nearest me, Dave & Buster's yeah. and Cheesecake are two of the biggest tenants. The other one is a movie theater, which will not be paying either. I mean, yeah, they, didn't yeah. say, they didn't say they won't be paying. But, They're next. <laughs> um, and all of the, and there's no, the, you can't replace them now. And even if you could, you wouldn't want to lose any of them. But, uh, and I did see that some mall operators sent out things saying that you do have to pay your rent, but please talk to them. I also noticed what was interesting is my, um, the company that owns my apartment, which is the biggest apartment um, owner in the U.S., um, sent out a very Appeal. interesting, but, no, they're not the biggest. They're, the Brickfield is not the biggest. Um, but this one uh, sent out a email that was very interesting. Um, basically, not saying that you have to pay your rent exactly, but saying everything they could about how you'll be getting money from all these other sources. If you're unemployed, here's the money that's about to come to you. If the, the government's sending everyone a check, this and that, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly telling you, please give us that money because yeah, you, know you're, sure. you're, you know that you're, you think you don't have money right now, but more money will be coming. So send us the money you have now. Yeah. Um, so, and of course they also have things where if you are like a restaurant worker or something, you're not paying rent right now, but if you are not directly affected, you are supposed to be paying rent. So they clearly are very concerned. Um, I mean, it was really uh, a strange email in terms of how much detail they were trying to provide people about. This is what your financial situation really is. I know you think you don't have money, but you're going to have money. That's um, so. No, they were just helping everyone out. Yeah, so there's no hidden motive there. So everyone's concerned about this. Um, but the so we'll see. Um, we we talked about recapitalizations and stuff. So that's basically what this is with Dave and Buster's. I don't know exactly what will happen, but it'll be some form of recapitalization. Uh, Carnival, by the way, did recapitalize. So yeah. I don't know if you, if you can find the news, but they did three things at once. They issued uh, straight um, stock, uh, straight bonds um, that just pay a yield. And I believe the yield on that, those were priced at 11.5%. Um, there was more demand for that than they expected. There was less demand than they expected for their um, common stock, which they sold at, I think, $8 a share. And then they also sold some convertible uh, convertible um, bonds, which I think yield, I don't know, like 5, um, 5% or so, and then also convert under some conditions into stock. So you can see that's the common stock offer, mm -hmm. right? But I think the amount of bonds were like, it could be like the bonds were 10, ended up being like 10 times what the stock was or something. There was heavy interest in the bonds. That's something that's interesting. There's very, very high interest in, um, in buying corporate bonds. There's been a ton of corporate bonds issued recently in the last week or two. Um, and uh, yeah, last two weeks and a, a ton of interest. And so I, I think they were like, uh, had way more interest than they needed to sell those bonds. But like I said, I believe they were like 11 and a half percent bonds. Theoretically, the company was rated investment grade, you know, moments, not mo not moments, but days or whatever before they did that. Um, but obviously, it's very distressed if it's selling at, you know, what is that um, spread over treasuries? Um, and it's not a long term bond. Uh, so it's a very heavy, big spread. Um, but that's recapitalization. So like we talked about recapitalizations, uh, it depends on, you know, how you define that as if that's the final one, because it only raised 
uh, you know, whatever that is, you can check, but 6 billion or something like that um, versus a stock that, you know, has significant expenses and has a significant cash burn. But yeah, so basically we are hearing that Dave and Buster's might be recapitalized soon. Carnival already has been recapitalized. So that's just what I meant about recapitalizations and whether you want to look at the stocks after they've done those. Mm-hmm. So you're first, uh, and I, I'm assuming, right, when you're looking at all these companies, you're quickly, the first thing you're probably doing is going to the balance sheet. And are you trying to figure out their cash burn? Is that like one of the first things that you're looking at to, to see if people could even survive what's going on right now? Yeah, so that's potentially one of them. But the cash burn thing is complex. What I feel I really like focus- I'm, a, I'm a venture capitalist asking you those questions. <laughs> yeah, what, I, what I'm really focusing in on is um, the balance sheet. And this is a big thing I have to talk about. When I see a lot of people talk about things, I think the thing that's dangerous and, and it's not well understood all the time, but it's especially important now, is that a balance sheet is a snapshot in time and it is showing you a business that's in motion. This is something that I talked about with Cheesecake Factory. They have payables, for instance. Those payables are a source of funds that they normally have that are a few hundred million dollars or something. Um, those sorts of things reverse uh, once the business is shut down because it's like putting the business in liquidation. So for instance, the company would still have to pay some suppliers because it's already used the food that it bought from them. And it would still have to um, pay employees for their last like two weeks of work or whatever. Um, in some cases, companies agree to pay even beyond when the employees stopped working, but you have to pay them for the work they already performed. So normally you have people being paid once every two weeks or something. And so on average, you have a week of pay from a, a week of work from everyone that they haven't been paid for yet in any situation. And you also have got stuff that you've uh, bought and in many cases used already that you haven't even paid for because you might be on 30 days or 90 days or whatever to pay for it. And those things change in the financial situation that you have in a, um, in a you know, uh, shutdown. And that's important for things like airlines and stuff. So for instance, when people estimate the cash burn of airlines, one thing they're not taking into account is airlines, cruise lines, things like that, there's a reason why they don't want to like refund you money for stuff that you've given them for the airline tickets. It's not really that they just want to make money off of you or that they, it's that they are desperate for cash and they now have to give you cash back. That's their normal source of float. And so giving you that back means that the actual outflows from the business in cash terms are quite a bit worse than what they lose in uh, gap terms. So, and in recovery, it would be reversed. So if they're giving back people's money for um, cruises and, and airline tickets and things that were paid for in part or whole before, then they're giving back more cash than it even appears. And so that's what I'm talking about with these balance sheet issues like Hamilton Beach Brands, for instance, ha- normally has purchase order obligations that it has of a few hundred million dollars and stuff. That's way beyond anything they can actually pay for unless their business is growing and stuff. Now, there's probably ways to get out of that because either, the, either the, there's clauses built into them that something like this you can get out of. I don't know. I would think that many courts might let almost everyone out of just purchase orders um, because there's usually stuff in them. They're not like insurance. So like people want to get, I know that a lot of people and a lot of businesses want business insurance, uh, business uh, interruption to be, to be paid for for that, right? Because this interrupted their business. They had to shut down. They thought that's what the insurance is for. But the insurers are very clear normally in these policies that, uh, something like a viral outbreak is not covered and that's written into insurance very well. So on the other hand, things like um, colleges and um, businesses and things like that often have taken money from people and do not have things written into them 
to mean that the that uh, they would not be obligated to give you back your money. So the issue with the balance sheet of these companies is they need to be pretty liquid and you need to look at the cash flows, like the earnings does not matter. And the cash burn thing works, like you said, for venture capital, because that's very easy to estimate the cash burn without looking at like these balance sheet items that change. But for these companies, the things that's really critical is access to cash, which mainly means actually having cash, um, having receivables from parties that are likely to actually pay. Those are good to be sold, uh, to be factored and stuff like that, or to borrow against. So Hamilton Beach Rands, for instance, half of their receivables probably at the, you know, are normally from uh, Walmart and Amazon, perfectly safe. That's why they sell the receivables all the time, probably, is they can quickly get cash for it and the people know that the cash is good. Um, so you really have to look at what those things are that they have. The reason for like a casino, why you worry, right, is what assets does a casino have um, that it can turn into cash? So then it depends on how much access it has to credit lines and things like that. That's why I talked a lot more about a company like Haynes Brands, which has a lot of cash it can access pretty quickly. It has a lot of very quick assets, assets that can turn to cash very quickly. And it has a lot of debt that's spaced further out into the future. So although it's a heavily indebted company and people might be worried about it that way, in many ways that is more likely to not have cash problems than you do with some companies that don't even have much borrowing. If you didn't have much borrowing, but you don't keep much cash on hand and you don't have quick assets, then that's a real problem. I mean, when you're shut down, these are all problems about how you can sell this stuff. I mean, the thing we talk about with Virtue is true for every single car dealer. I can't imagine a car dealer that doesn't have solvency problems this year because you aren't moving cars and your assets are basically just landing cars and you have a lot of borrowing against your cars. So you've borrowed a lot against your cars and yet you can't sell your cars right now. So a lot of these are, can they work things out? And that's what makes them speculative. Like car dealers, car dealers can survive, but they can only survive by working on modifications with car manufacturers, their lenders and um, and their landlords. And they, in a lot of cases, those parties probably want to modify things for them and to keep them in business and to keep doing business with them because it's not in their interest to, it's not in manufacturer's interest to lose the dealerships that sell their cars. It's not in the, uh, it's not in any um, uh, creditor's interest to end up with a lot of cars that you, uh, the, the collateral that you actually have to take. Uh, you don't want to do that right now. And landlords and stuff too, these are, you know, like any landlords, this, this is a better tenant in the future than you're going to get, just like we're talking about with malls. So they may be in good positions to negotiate things, but they're going to have to negotiate things which are different from the contracts they had before. And there's lots of companies which need that. They need something modified. Interesting. That was a really good explanation. So um, in today's email, uh, a question that was asked of you, somebody asked you, why shouldn't he count or he or she count EPS growth from buybacks when valuing a stock? And for everybody, if you're not familiar with this, you can get this. I tweeted out every single day at Focus Compound to go to focuscompounding.com, enter in your email to get in your email box Monday through Friday. And your answer was, Jeff, it's best to assume future growth in earnings per share caused by buybacks will be tied to the price at which future buybacks are done. So can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. So this question is specifically about Omnicom. Omnicom regularly buys back stock. And this is very, very important in understanding when you would want to buy a company that buys back stock all the time and when you wouldn't. So people often use the 
earnings per share growth rate of the past. That should not be used for a stock doing buybacks. And the reason why is that this, the growth you get from the buybacks depends entirely on the price at which you bought back your stock. So this means that a stock that buys back its uh, shares all the time is especially unattractive uh, relative to its normal situation when it gets expensive. And it's exceptionally attractive when it gets cheap. And so in terms of a timing thing, you definitely want to focus on just buying stocks that buy back a lot of their shares when they're cheap. And the reason I explained there, and we could do this maybe if you can get a quote on Omnicom or something, yeah. um, is that, so if you look at Omnicom, the, uh, the dividend yield, right, is 5.2% and the stock's uh, PE is eight, right? So we'll, the PE is slightly understates free cash flow normally. They'll, they won't have earnings as high as they had last year for a couple of years now, probably because there'll be a, a recession in advertising. But putting that aside, their normal earnings should be um, the earnings yield on a P of eight. So that means over 12%. And their dividend should be about 5%. So they do do some stuff that dilutes a little bit, but that's mostly offset by the fact that free cash is higher than earnings anyway. So in reality, you can estimate right now that the stock is likely to pay you a dividend of about 5% and to buy back about 7% of its shares. Um, that's 12% minus 5% leave 7% because they use everything on dividends and buybacks. I should warn, I don't know they'll do that this year, but they are, you know, they're not like Penn National Gaming or something. They're, yeah. they're, they're, I don't know where their bonds are trading right now, but they're a well-financed company and stuff for the most part. So um, what that means is that your, what will your EPS growth be? There's an even simpler way to do this, which is just to count on what dividend you get, ignore the fact of what earnings are reported as, and then assume that your dividend growth rate is equal to the rate of buybacks, how much of the market cap is being bought back each year. So in this case, you're getting a 5% coupon, which is then growing at 7% a year because 12, because you take the earnings yield. So one divided by eight is 12 point something percent. And then you subtract out the dividend yield, which is 5.24%. And you're left with the uh, buyback yield, if you want to call it that, which is like 7% here. So the reason I'm saying this is because imagine that Omnicom instead of being worth, instead of being priced at $50 a share was now at $100 a share, right? People really get the fact that that would decline their dividend from 5.24% to 2.6%, right? So they really get that idea that I'm paying more for it, just like when a bond is more expensive. But they don't get the, the phantom part of what's happening here. They get the cash part, but they don't pay enough attention to the fact that actually buybacks at Omnicom are equal to or greater than dividends. So the change in the value of the stock is dramatic because not only is your yield initially changed by a price going up a lot, but your rate of growth drops in half, right? It gets cut in half because they can only buy back half as much of their market cap as they were before. So if you think about it, if the stock's at 100 instead of at 49.59, well, then you're now having a growth rate of only like three and a half percent, whereas because of the buybacks, whereas mm -hmm. if you buy it today, the growth rate is like seven percent. Yeah. So it's dramatically different. So what you want to do with stocks like this is if they constantly buy back their stock, a lot of people talk about this, like if they constantly buy back their stock, is that good? Is that bad? It's just good for you as a shareholder. The reason why it's only good for you is because you can sell the stock and you can buy the stock. So all you do is you buy the stock when the buybacks make sense. So if the buybacks are value added, buy the stock. 
then if the company keeps buying back stock when its stock gets too expensive, some people complain about that, but there's an easy solution for you as a shareholder. If it's too expensive for the company to be using its capital to buy back stock, you shouldn't hold the stock. So you sell at that point. And then if it comes back down to a point where it's attractive, you buy again. It's like so your value why, trading. Yeah. So why I say that with Omnicom though, is because it's so dramatic what they what their buybacks are and the, the, the price differences mean completely different growth rates. So there have been times in the past, like uh, 20 years ago or so, where the buybacks were causing growth of less than 2%. I mean, they were buying back one, one and a half percent of their market cap. They were using the same amount of their uh, of the ratios that they had on buybacks, but their stock was trading at, you know, huge multiples, right? So if your mm -hmm. stock is at 40 times PE versus your stock is at 20 times PE versus at 10 PE is a huge difference. So a stock that buys back a lot of its shares at 8 PE is incredibly attractive. And that's the kind of thing that you want to buy now because people don't think about Omnicom as a growth stock because it's a no growth stock, okay? It's no growth business, but it's not a no growth stock. If you buy it cheap enough and it buys back its own shares, it becomes a growth company. It actually can grow at five, six, seven percent a year. And in fact, if the, if the stock itself doesn't rise in price enough to give you a really good return, they will grow their earnings per share by like five to seven percent a year for years to come. Because if it stays down there, they'll buy back so much stock that that's what will happen. So it'll actually look like it can grow as much as all sorts of decent businesses in the US, even though its industry doesn't grow that way. Plus, of course, you get the dividend. So I'm just saying it's very, very important to not use calculations for EPS growth, only use the actual organic growth of the business. And then think about the EPS growth, not as what it did in the past, because that depended on past prices, but today's price. And so if you knew that Omnicom was going to buy back, use half of its earnings to buy back stock and have to pay you a dividend roughly, then you know that you're going to get growth that's equal to or greater than the dividend yield. So when you see a dividend yield of like over 5%, that's a company that's paying you a 5% dividend, plus it's growing by 5% a year. And, it, and because of the way it works, it'll keep growing that dividend by 5% a year. So suddenly it becomes very attractive, where at higher prices, it's much less attractive. This is not as true for companies that don't buy back stock. It's much less true. So the sensitivity of whether you want to buy Omnicom or not is very much uh, is very strongly uh, about the price. And the reason that's strongly about the price is because the company's growth, as hard as it is to believe, depends on price because it uses it doesn't reinvest in its business very much. It just reinvests in its own stock. So the EPS growth rate is really um, the growth rate is really dependent on. In this case, it's half the earnings yield. So you take the earnings yield and then you take half of that. So one divided by eight times 0.5, that's basically what it'll grow at. And then of course, the great thing is the optionality of it for you is that if it rises in price, that will slow the earnings per share growth rate, but then you can sell the stock at a better price. So hmm. it actually is very attractive that way. So it's very, very important though that you don't count that because if you think about it, say this happens and it works great for you and you own the stock for five years. Okay, then fast forward to 2025. The problem is that someone looking at Omnicom at 15 times earnings in 2025 will think, oh, look at the earnings per share growth. It was growing 6% a year for the last five years. It's not a slow growth company at all. But mm -hmm. those were all driven by buybacks at low prices. And now you no longer have a low price. You know, So it's always calculate for a stock that buys back its shares. What is the um, uh, likely growth rate in the future dependent on my buyback? Don't ever count buybacks as a source of growth unless you know what the price was before and what the price is now. Always use the price. 
always use price. I just wanted to talk about this because it just came across the wire. It looks like Berkshire is dumping Delta, and it looks like they also dumped um, Southwest as well. He's getting uh, how, out of it. How much have they dumped of it? Let's see. I'm looking at this one. Let's see. This one doesn't amount. Six, how many shares do he have? I don't know how many he has going into it. Well, let's see if we can find. Here we go. Berkshire Hathaway sold. This guy usually is pretty right. Um, about 13 million, 12.99 Delta Airline shares uh, at 22.96, between 22.96 and 26.04. And then I saw one come through for love as well. Let's see. He sold 2.3 million Southwest shares uh, between 31.38 and 33.97. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Freeing up cash or what? I mean, a lot of people were speculating. <laughs> a lot of people were speculating, um, you know, that he was going to have some sort of deal with these guys, and it looks like he's dumping it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that. I know he said in an interview that he wouldn't uh, sell those things, but um, but that what was before you? this happened. Yeah. Uh, what about UAL? He owned UAL, right? Uh, yeah. On that. So. He um, I, d I don't know. I don't know why he's doing that. There's two possible reasons, obviously. Um, if we don't know that he's selling all of the stocks, then there, there's two reasons. One, which would seem very possible, is that he wants to get out of all the stocks. We also, by the way, know that one of the stocks is not owned by him. I should point that out. So one of the airline stocks is not Buffett's. He hasn't said which airline it is, but one airline is owned by uh, Todd or Chad. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so they own what four airlines? I, I thought it was like, I thought it was like a secular play is the way that he they described it. Yeah. I mean, you can get a data Roma probably. Um, what his positions were the last time that he. That he let's see. For some reason, when we record, <laughs> my computer loves to uh, go slow. Let's see if we could find. Yeah, it keeps failing on us. I don't know. But yeah, he had, I know they own all the big ones. I think they own United as well. Uh, I know it's Southwest, Delta, United. Um, that's it, right? He didn't own American, did he? Uh, I, I don't know. They, they, I believe that they own four airlines and that three of them were owned by him and one by uh, someone else in the, at the company. Um, but so the, anyway, the two reasons are obviously that they could be doing it because they want out of the companies, which would make a lot of sense because they're, they're not safe. Yeah. Um, the other reason for doing it is that you're selling all but the one that you're doing something with. So yeah, it's interesting. I think that's less likely, but it's not impossible. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, all of them are obviously very troubled. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the situation would be, but Buffett will lose, I mean, Berkshire will lose a lot of money on their airline investments. He needs to call the 800 I'm an airaholic hotline. Yeah, and that's interesting because the one they talks about all the time, the US Air Preferred, uh, they made money on. <laughs> so yeah. this one, this one they'll have lost money this time around. Um, but in the past, yeah, they did make money on airlines. What do you think yeah. should happen with airlines? I don't know what will happen. But I mean, it won't be anything good for the people who are shareholders before this happened. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's crazy. I just wanted to talk about that because that just came across and 
you know, obviously there's out of Omaha, everything's been quiet. So a lot of people have been curious what's going on. And a lot of people are speculating if he's going to, you know, get a special deal going with, you know, his, his convertible preferreds or something mm -hmm. with, um, you know, with an airline. And uh, maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe that's not going to happen. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on this Friday. If you guys have any recommendations for anything you would like us to go over in these podcasts we are doing them monday through friday uh, we're always looking for new topics so definitely reach out to me you could either email info at focuscompound.com you could tweet to me you could dm me at focus compound or you could just leave us a comment on youtube if you're listening um, over there as well if you want to get access to the focus compound daily which we reference in the daily videos jeff is pumping out a lot of great content um, go to focuscompound.com and enter in your email and you'll get on that list and of course like i said i do tweet that out as well i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with jeff and myself a rating and review goes a very long way for us and we will see you on monday have a great weekend